Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and I'm here today to sort of reintroduce a campaign series that we are going to begin rerunning through our podcast feed, sort of. Back a few years ago, we started what was going to be a Patreon-exclusive actual play campaign. So the only ones that could listen to this is if you were one of our patrons. Like too many things on our <laughs> on our plate, uh, things didn't go to plan, and eventually that campaign died. But there is some really cool stuff that happened in this game. It is one of my favorite things I think I've ever ran. I really enjoyed the way the game was going and very disheartened and saddened that it unfortunately died. But it's been a couple years now and we've just been sitting on them and I thought, you know, why not just share them with anyone who might be interested? So I think there's like 20, 21 episodes of this campaign and, you know, spoiler, doesn't come to a satisfying conclusion. But I really think there's some interesting things that happen in the game that are worth sharing with the goal of eventually going back through and maybe doing a recap episode and talking about some of these decisions and some of these techniques that I was trying to implement. Uh, this is 100% my attempt at running an, a campaign that is an action-adventure TV show. There are, there are moments that literally feel like commercial breaks where we will do things like fade to black and then just like a TV show, we will pick up but the scene has changed slightly or reset it. Uh, hopefully you think I did well. I think I did. Uh, I certainly could do better in some cases, but I kind of want more people to listen to it, more people to experience it with, again, that goal of going back after these episodes have re-aired and then maybe um, kind of doing like a, not, not a full GM masterclass because I'm not going to commit myself to that, uh, but some sort of recap where, we can talk about the pluses and minuses of it. So Dark Discovery starts with four mini episodes where we introduce the characters. So we have Everin, Lander, Cade, and Craneth. Though we call him, his name is Craneth, but I think we start calling him Cranon pretty early, and I think that's the one that sticks. Uh, and so each of these mini episodes, just, you know, 10, 15 minutes long, it's an introduction to that character at some point in their life before the actual campaign starts. Now, these four character introduction episodes, as well as the first three actual play episodes, all were originally aired on our main feed. Again, we were trying to get people excited and interested, so they joined the Patreon. Uh, but I'm still going to re-release them, so they'll hit the feed and be in order with all the other episodes that are coming out. So this is going to be attached to um, the the introductory episodes. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all of those together into one episode and then we will have the episodes one, two, and three coming after that. So if you're listening to that, you should, this should be like, I don't know, 40 minutes long. I don't know yet. Uh, and it'll have each of the introductory episodes all in one file and then look for episodes one, two, three, four, and so on uh, until we get through all 20 of them. This will probably take, you know, several months uh, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, no promises, because gosh knows we can't, you know, guarantee that's going to happen. But we are talking about starting a new campaign now that I'm going to be moving and we're basically going to have to be playing remotely, even with what are normally my IRL characters, or excuse me, players. So I'm getting them currently, I'm getting them all new microphones, we're getting them new cameras, so they will have a decent setup, and we are looking at playing regularly and starting a new campaign, but we're not going to release anything until we have a substantial backload of episodes. 
but hopefully, again, fingers crossed that by the time this series ends, we will have a new ongoing active campaign that we will be able to share. So thank you, everyone who has listened in the past. Thank you for anyone who's listening in the future. And please, if you find any of this experimental campaign interesting, please let us know. It always makes it easier for us to continue to do things when we know people are connecting to what we're doing. Uh, So a tweet, an email, a message, a comment on the actual posting would all be greatly appreciated. All right. Well, that out of the way, on to the introduction episodes of Dark Discovery. I shouldn't have taken that job. So we open our scene on Cranith. You are in a dark forest late at night. The Sea of Draymouth is somewhere to the north and to the east of you. There's a seawall between you. However, what's more important than what's in front of you is what's behind you. Are the stories true? Is this a mage hound? It's absorbed all my spells. I... What? Is Is that a cave up ahead? As you get close to the edge of the forest, you can actually hear the trees being felled behind you as this creature gains speed and gains on you closer than it's been the entire time it's been chasing you. Maybe it leads to the Draymouth. <sighs> Cranthon will grab parchment and a sliver of coal and throws, it, throws his bag behind him, sprawling all of its contents on the forest floor, and tries to pick up his pace to get to the cave. So you break from the cover of the forest. It's now just a short stretch of just low grasses between you and what, yes, is actually a a cave mouth. Uh, You risk a glance over your shoulder and the behemoth has been following you, a a man-shaped object made of metal, what you believe is a mage hound that up until now you've only believed were stories to to scare people like you. But it's, uh, it's, again, humanoid, has arms and a leg, has a head. It doesn't seem to have any features, though. It's just completely blank-faced. But it actually stops for a moment as if to collect itself. And then it starts chasing after you in these long, looping, pounding steps. Now that you're in the open, you don't think you can outrun it. I can't believe that the gods have smiled upon me sending this thing after me. But I can definitely see the telltale purple bulbs of a licorice plant. My hope drives me faster to scoop the plant. I rip the root away and throw the bulbs and leaves. I focus quickly within me as well as on the root, and touch it to my chest, I immediately feel as if the wor- world around me has slowed. But it is me that is faster. So I'm assuming you're casting haste here? Yes. Okay. So with your spell, you your speed accelerates, and you do begin to make ground on the mage hound, who's falling further and further behind you, and you make it to the mouth of the cave. As I'm running, I start to scribble the message on the parchment to my brother, and... I start scribbling as fast as I can. I realize that when I get in this cave, I'm probably not going to be able to see. I I see a soft glow in the edge where I see some phosphorescent moss. I pick it up and I quickly uh, focus on the piece of charcoal and it immediately starts emanating light. So yeah, so now that you have more light, which you are still focused on writing this note to your brother, right? Yes. Okay, but you can see the cave. It, it appears to be a very natural cave. And even the entrance, you're not sure that the mage hound is going to be able to get in it. But based on the last three days, you're sure he'll find a way. Uh, but the, the cave is just, uh, it, it's expansive. It, it goes out in multiple directions. There's uh, areas that just sort of loop in on themselves very quickly that you can tell aren't any passageways. There's one main passageway that you continue to sort of wind through 
Uh, there's stalactites, stalagmites, some that meet in the middle. There's definitely, you can hear the sound of the ocean. Uh, you are in the seawall that separates this land from the Draymouth. If you can find a way through the entire seawall or through this entire cave structure, it is possible that the Draymouth will be open to you on the other side. Well, I am going to, as I'm running, I'm going to be looking at the ground and trying to look for like a more well-worn path. Just so hopefully I don't end up in one of these dead ends. And let's do a, let's do a higher low. I'll say hi. Okay. Yeah, you continue to, to navigate through around. You find a, like, what's to, what looks to be like an actual stream of water. Uh, so that maybe you think if you follow that, it might lead you somewhere. And uh, you do hear not a crashing sound, but a, a thud and then like a thump as the mage hound has clearly pressed its way through the cave mouth and, and entered behind you. Okay, so I'm going to try to actually get in, like run inside the stream. Just to, because I don't know how this thing's tracking me. So I'll try to like kind of throw it off my scent or whatever. All right. The, the um, splashing footsteps echo throughout the cave in every direction as you as you run through this shallow stream of water. Okay. So let's see where I'm at. I'm running really low on spells. Okay. So I'm just going to need to get a, I need okay. to get a message to my brother. So um, I'm going to. I'll use my sorcery point. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, focus within myself and create a translucent copper wire. Uh, and then it's almost as soon as I make it, it's going to dissipate as I send a message to my brother Lander. And are you doing this as you still try to move through the cave? Like you're kind of almost like you're talking to yourself as you go from stalagmite to stalagmite and deeper into the cave. Yeah. Like I'm still trying, I'm trying to go more downwards. So hoping to get down to the like the shore so any paths i take i'm going to try to focus on the ones that go lower in a more downward direction okay so what does this message to your brother say what's the name of your brother by the way uh lander okay is his name so it's going to say i've got 25 words so i'm going to say mage hounds are real written message follow the coast almost three miles west of Jalen, a cave the right passage. And then just there, you actually stop mid-sentence as you've broken through one of these caves that you ducked through. And it opens into like a like a grotto. There's just this huge cavern inside this area that you've been in. And in front of you, there's, a, there's basically a body of water that's inside the cave. And you don't see any way in or out. But there's actually a ship just sitting there anchored in this grotto inside this cave. A ship. So that actually goes through as part of your message. The mage hound, which seems to be able to track you unerringly and was not distracted in the slightest by the echoes or by the footsteps of the water, crashes a big giant iron fist into the back of your head. At least he's going to try to. What is your armor class? 12. Uh, no, yeah. 11, sorry. Yeah. Even, either way, you're going to take 22 points of damage as he almost like backhands you. And then you're going to go flying through the air. And when you came into this grotto, you saw the ship. What you didn't see is to either side of this entrance were a bunch of tables and stacked books and parchments and vials with different liquids, almost like an alchemical lab of some sort. And you just get knocked into that. You flip over the table. You're now lying in all this debris. 
You can feel, you know, glass shards breaking under you. All these different liquids uh, and objects are are just sort of all around you and on top, or you're on top of them. And you get these different weird sensations like cold and hot. And then you can hear the thundering footsteps as it comes closer. So my guy's pretty intelligent. So as just before he gets hit, basically, he's going to throw the message down on the ground. And then he gets hit and falls into this thing. And he starts like this shot. This one shot's almost killed him, basically. So he he's probably like pretty woozy and disoriented. And he's lost his piece of charcoal. So you probably can't see very well either. Do you have any spells left? No, not now. So, well, they don't work anyways. So he will, like, be on his back and basically just kind of reach around in the dark and try to grab basically anything he feels like is solid to where he can try to take this thing with him because he's probably, he probably knows he's probably going to die. All right. So you uh, you basically lay back. The creature stalks over to you. It actually like full mounts you. So it puts down a, a, a big giant metal knee on the other side of your waist. And just with two hands, it just wraps them around your throat and starts to squeeze. Lander, you hear the voice of your brother break in and just say those words to you. And then it's, it stops very suddenly. And you probably even hear, ah, before it finishes. You have a chance with this, but you can respond. Do you want to say something back? I do. I respond back to Cranton. Cranton, did you find what you were looking for? Are you okay? And quickly, the light of the cave gets dark. Even your your charcoal that you lit earlier, as you start to lose conscious, it actually starts to fade, you know, get darker. And your hand just starts, you know, you're just scrambling for something, for anything. Let's do uh, one more high or low. Low. All right. So your vision's down to like pinpricks at this point. And then you finally, your right hand, you grasp something that's metallic probably about two inches uh, in diameter. It's very, very cold, almost painfully cold to the touch, but it's got heft, so, you know, almost maybe feels like a, like a mace handle, but the weight's not quite right, but it's definitely heavy. Well, that's what I wanted. So now I'm going to try to hit him in the head with it. All right. Roll your attack roll. <laughs> a 20. Critical. You natural 20? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So with what remaining strength you have, so you, you bring this object and it crosses in front of your vision just before you go completely dark. So you see it, and it appears to be about a foot and a half long of just completely same-shaped rod. But it has a, a stripe, almost like a barber pole stripe, but it's black and gray. And it connects just to the side of this mage hound's face. It, it breaks instantly. And then the, the part that's in, still in your hand sort of slides across the front of the featureless face. And then everything goes dark. We pick up the scene short time later outside the cave mouth. There is a, uh, a squad of elven guards who are standing there waiting for the mage hound to return. It comes out of the cave and it's carrying a limp body over its shoulder. One thing about the mage hound that seems different is that there's now almost like a scorch mark that goes across its face. It's not continuous, not like a unibrow. It actually stutters and it kind of makes the Maytown look like it's squinting from a distance. It's just like these black scratch gouge marks on it. Uh, it walks up to where the mage, uh, excuse me, walks up to where the elven guards are, and it drops the body down, and we see the lifeless body of, of Cranthon. And just in case there's any thought that there might be hope, 
before anything else can happen, several of the elven soldiers draw spears, run up, and just start stabbing this body repeatedly over and over again until there is clearly nothing left. Their work done, the leader of the elves calls everyone together, heads, uh, calls them over to go back towards uh, Jalen, but the magehound doesn't respond right away. It, it stops and even though it doesn't really have eyes, it, it turns as if it's looking over its shoulder back towards the cave mouth. And that is where we will end your scene. Excellent. And the scene opens in the city of Amber Reach. We see Cade Thorngage, who just left the docks. And he's walked down and further and further away from the docks into a seedier and darker part of town. And now he stands before an unassuming door. Cade takes one last look up at the uh, at the sign that's flapping in the sea breeze. It reads the the broken mug. Uh, a gall sits on top of the on top of the the sign, calling as it looks down at him. He smiles at the gall, thinking, "Yeah, me too, buddy." As he reaches down and and uh, one last time checks to see that the large sack. Uh, a heavy large sack of gold is still hanging at his at a, attached to his belt. Cade smiles and uh kicks some of the 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 uh the street muck from his boots and and s- shakes the dust from his from his jacket and uh looks up at the gall and kind of gives him a salute and uh suppresses a smile as he knows his journey is just about to come to a close and he pushes open the door. So the door on your left half breaks the top hinge snaps and the door just walks off and and almost slaps you in the head as you walk past you're in the dingiest of dive bars from a life of visiting dingy dive bars there are not even actual tables in this tavern if you want to call it that there are a bunch of crates and boxes obviously commandeered from the from the docks nearby and they're set up in a very makeshift pattern. Uh, there's only two patrons in the, the establishment that you can see. They're both in the far back against a blank, white, grimy-covered black back wall. Uh, they appear to either be dead or in the throes of some sort of drunken stupor or maybe even drug-addled stupor as they're sort of leaning across each other. And the one you can see best has his mouth wide open and there's clearly like drool just sort of dripping down from his open mouth. On the right side of the room, there is a bar which is little more than a long piece of wood up on a top of a couple other crates. There's a small shelf behind the elderly gentleman there who is absently wiping down the top of the bar. He doesn't even pay you full mind when the door opens. He just sort of crosswise out of the left side of his eyes, gazes towards you, and then continues to about his duties. He, he Cade steps through the door and, and, you know, holding the piece of it in, in his hand. He looks down at that and then back up and, and takes the room in in a slow kind of to say what the hell um he actually steps back outside and and looks up one more time um the gall kind of cocks his head and goes "Uh (laughs) and and he kate will shake his head again and just walk through this time pushing you know gingerly pushing the door out of his way and walking up towards the bar um he'll approach the the barman and kind of clamber up on on top of one one of the boxes. All right. So most dive bars that you've been in, the bartenders are pretty excited to see patrons, especially in a place this 
um, dour, you'd think he would be more interested in serving you. He doesn't seem to be paying you a lot of mind. So there aren't actual stools. It's just crates. So mm-hmm. you can find one that's a little shorter, a little easier for you to scramble up on. And you find yourself sitting at the bar, but your chin is just above the bar level. So, uh, you know, um, I think Sarah told me I was, this was the place to come if I was looking for something a little more lively and exciting. So at the at the name of Sarah, he he turns his gaze towards you and he doesn't say or do anything else. He just sort of shuffles sideways. So now he's in front of you and he continues to be sort of just rubbing the bar in front of you as if there's a spot there that he can differentiate between all the other spots on the bar. Cadle kind of, you know, give him a, you know, kind of like, uh-huh. And, and he'll drop a a gold dragon on the bar. So the uh, the hand wiping continues and, and deftly, more deftly than you would have imagined for a man this old, the gold coin gets swallowed up by his dirty rag. And then almost like a magician, he pulls the rag off the edge of the bar. Nothing falls and it's it's just gone. He moves his foot or you can sort of tell that he's moving his foot slightly. Slightly, There's like a scuff and then you hear a click. And then there's another sort of rejoining click to your left where that back wall would be. So as you turn your gaze that way, the first thing you notice is that the two men who were in the stupor before appear to be putting weapons away. They are not quite as debilitated as they would have let you believe. They replace what appears to be daggers back into their clothes, and then they sort of resume that pose they were in. And you also notice sort of a an outline of a door now amongst the grime of that bare back wall. Thanks, friend. Cato says he scampers down off the stool and he'll uh, straighten his jacket again and and walk over towards that um, towards that outline. As he gets closer to it, he he reaches into the sli- the opposite sleeve of his coat and pulls out two more coins and and tosses them over towards the two um, the two former drunks who were resuming their positions and presses through. Right, so yeah, it, it's a like a secret door. Now that it's been unlatched, it, it pushes open on unseen hinges. They make no noise. These are well cared for hinges, despite the grimy in- exterior of that door. Uh, you find yourself in a, in a tight, even for your size, a tight hallway that, for no apparent reason, does a bunch of zigzags. It goes left and right every five feet uh, several times, and just sort of casually looking around, you're pretty sure you see. Um, holes in the wall at various heights that if an intruder were to have come through this hallway without welcome, very likely they would not have made it all the way through. Uh, Once you clear that, it opens back up and there's like a 10-foot hallway. And then this is where things get a little strange. There is a door that absolutely does not belong, not only necessarily in this bar, but in this town. It is a thick golden oak been sanded and varnished to a, to a pristine shine. It has intricate scroll work all within it. And there's actually um, this like filigree uh, within it as well. I mean, it's just beautiful. But the thing that actually draws your eyes first are the hinges. You can clearly see that these hinges are made of dark iron. Dark iron hinges. Wow. Definitely said this place had coin thinks to himself is as he approaches the door there's no one outside the door right uh, no there's no one outside the door is there a knocker or anything like that on the door uh, not that you can see but there's a lot of intricate 
decoration and scroll mm-hmm. work. So it's possible that it's there and it's just not obvious. <laughs> he just doesn't see it. All right. Um, spend a couple seconds looking at the door just quickly to, you know, make sure there wasn't one. And, and obviously, uh, or cognizant of the fact that there, if he takes too long, or, you know, he may be murdered from one of the hidden murder holes, he will um, knock on the door. All right. So you knock. And uh, above you, probably about uh, the five, six foot height mark, a like a sliding door, which again, you couldn't have even told told that it was there, slides open. And there's about a five second delay and then it closes back. Used to this being a halfling in a much larger person's world, he will knock again. So this time there's a, a similar door that slides across. This one's now your height. And you see a very dark-skinned, uh, just just tanned, not naturally dark, but a tanned-skinned male, a very short, almost like a military-style haircut. Face has got a couple scars across his nose. He clearly is someone that has fought uh, at some point in the past. You do know that the gladiatorial arenas within Amber Reach were disbanded a few years ago, and many of the gladiators have, have won to, to other opportunities, bodyguarding among them. And he just sort of stares at you. He doesn't say anything. Spellbound, please. The door sh- shuts quickly, just as quick as it did before. But there is also then the, a latch that turns. You hear like a bar being slid over. There's a chain being dropped. There's another latch. And then there's two more latches. And then finally the door swings open. And you are immediately hit with the smell of fine cigars, the laughter and talking and the clinking of drinks and mugs. You have definitely entered a very well-kept establishment. As the the door is being opened from the multitude of locks, he thinks to himself about how difficult that would be to pick, and if he would if he would ever have to for for some for some reason, just trying to uh, thinking, listening to the locks, you know, twisting. He's like, oh, it's a, uh, maybe a, a tumble lock here, a pin over here. Uh, I don't know if I get through that. So uh, as you're thinking that, you you turn your gaze back to the door, you know, to see all the different mechanisms that had it secured. And a couple of things to catch your eye. One, the human that was there is just massive, easily six and a half feet tall, ripple muscles, scarred all over the place. So clearly a former gladiator. Uh, he has a row of weapons right by the door. They're all spears. He does have a, a short sword on his hip as well. And you can see just the barest outline of what probably is a secret door on the other side of the hallway, which is probably what would let, would what let him into those secret alcoves, into the murder holes that you passed by before. Whether there's people in them now, you don't know. But your gaze is brought to the front as you walk into Spellbound. It is a elite, hidden, upper-crust gambling den in the foul reaches of Amber Reach. You, uh, you have spent lots of coin and probably, what, I don't know, what, years at this point? I'd say so. Looking for this place. Uh, so as you walk into the left, that's where all the gambling has taken place. You can see several men and women, mostly human. Uh, These not quite as buff as the one you passed. They're behind these tables just filled with people of all different types. Humans, dwarves, halflings. No elves. Pity. Yeah. They're playing games like Dragon Dice, uh, Chimera's Fortune. They're playing a game of some kind of dice game that you've actually never seen before, which does catch your eye a little bit. Uh, there's one table of some very loud folk who are probably playing Medusa's Gamble. They're actually holding the cards up to their head so that other people can see their cards. 
you're about to turn your gaze away from the gambling den because that's not really what you're here for. But the clattering of the dragon egg as it spins along its wheel looking for its home, that sort of catches you just for a second. And then you see something very strange, something you haven't seen for a very, very long time. There's a, a halfling at that table. He's standing on a stool, just immaculately dressed, uh, got some rings on, uh, not gaudy, but clearly wealth. And most importantly, he has both of his ears uncut. Huh. Cade thinks to himself, I can't remember the last time I saw a halfling that had both his ears. Well, I guess there was that one guy in Jesser's Reach. The elves, what'd they do to him? Hang him? No, was he, was he drawn and quartered? I don't remember. Very likely both. Oh, hanged and drawn and quartered. Hanged and drawn and quartered. And burned? In this world, all halflings have their ears bobbed at birth. And you either have to be rich, brave, stupid, or all three to have that not done, find a way to, to change it, or have a very wealthy family that can keep you hidden. Uh, you can also see the elegance with which the place was built. It's, you know, that deep uh, oak and wood. There's mahogany. There's crystalline chandeliers that you think might actually be made of crystal. There are small statues throughout the room that are either gold or gold-plated. Uh, there are also more pieces of dark iron spread throughout, and clearly this is a place of opulence. To the right is the bar, the actual bar this time, a huge mahogany bar. Uh, there's two other big sort of buffy guys behind it. Uh, there's just row after row of drinks, including some elven selections. Uh, they may be assholes, but they know their wine. Uh, also, dwarven ales, mugs, ciders, pretty much anything you could think of they probably have. But that is not what draws your eyes either. What you are drawn to is above the bar, hanging on the, the wall, close to the ceiling actually, is what appears to be a framed piece of cloth. And whatever was written on the cloth or whatever it depicted is faded, but it does look like it might have been like signed by someone. There's like clear, dark lettering kind of at the bottom right, like a scrawl. And that is what has brought you here. So you start to make your way to, towards the bar, and then that's where you also see uh, one other sectioned off area, like a private area. And currently there is uh, it's just a bunch of empty seats except for one. And there's a figure in one of those seats that almost makes you do a double take. Just because you're, for a second, you're not sure what you're looking at. It, it almost looks like, it almost looks like a dwarf with all of their blood sucked out of them and yet hairless. And what you realize is that it is a hairless dwarf, but ancient, anciently old, so old and so wrinkly that it almost doesn't look like a person anymore. And despite the, the old age, very crystalline blue eyes. I mean, sharp, piercing eyes that clearly see you. And this creature of whatever it is, if that is, is surrounded. There's a couple uh, ladies on either side of him. And there's also two more of those big burly guards. And uh, he seems to pay attention to you or, or this thing, which you think is a male, hard to tell for sure, gazes over you and then moves past. Kate spends a, a just a, a minute or two longer taking all this in. This is this is it. You know, he expected the the outside of the broken mug to be it, but this time this is it. He sees the framed cloth, what he came for, and he just takes a deep breath and the and inhales the the smell of of the cigar 
and here's the clanking of of coins together, dice rolling on on the table, spinning wheels, and then he decides he needs a drink. <laughs> However, before he does that, he will he will stop and and look at the at at the dwarf hairless dwarf as it as it catches his gaze, and he gives he gives the 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 man a kind of like a like a you know like a a poor salute forever like a you know a high kind of a salute and now and that proceeds to the bar now that you've got a better look you are pretty sure it's a male but it's still really hard to tell uh you know if you were a betting man 60 40 maybe oh, okay but whatever it is we'll go with male for now so, so we're gonna say this is an androgynous dwarf an androgynous dwarf gives you uh, like a slight nod of the head mm-hmm. in recognition uh, at that, the two burly men that are guarding him see this, so they turn and they look at you as well. Uh, they don't really, really react to you, but clearly you now know they know that you're there. So you saddle yourself up to the bar, and there are actually halfling-sized stools. There are dwarf-sized stools, and there's human-sized stools. And then what you actually realize is that they're adjustable, that you can choose for the seat height to adjust. So you can easily climb on one of the shorter ones and then it actually ratchets up so that you're setting sort of normal height to the bar. They've thought of everything here, Cade thinks to himself, is, is he walks with a little bit of bounce in his step over towards that bar and, and sits down on a stool and starts a cranking. <laughs> so there's a click, 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 click as you uh, raise yourself up. Uh, one of the men that's, the, that's bartending comes over and uh, he says, yes, what will you have, sir? I would like a very nice I would like a very nice mug of ale and I would like a shot of whiskey. Of course, sir. He turns and starts, you know, gathering the bottles to pour you your drinks. And almost like a like a ghostly whisper, you feel more than hear or see a form slot into a seat next to you. So you're almost startled when you turn and you see a, a lady sitting there. She's human. She's a few years past beautiful, but still very attractive. Maybe a little bit too much makeup uh, covering some of the age and some of the wrinkles. Well-dressed, has uh, not a gaudy amount of rings and jewelry, but but bordering on that. And actually, go ahead and give me a perception check. Uh, 19. You can tell that not all of it, but definitely some of it's costume jewelry. It's not all true wealth. Cade being someone who's naturally calm and cool, will suppress the surprise of seeing her there and and flash her a smile. Good evening. She'll hold out her hand to you almost like a southern lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which he will smoothly take and, and kiss appropriately. She sort of teehees a little bit. She's like, why, you are new in town, sir. May I ask your name? Cade Thorngage. And who would a beauty such as you be? Why, folks around here just call me Shelley. A marvelous name. Why, why, thank you. It, it fits being this close to the, the shore. So I know I have not seen you in this establishment, establishment before, sir. Are you new in town? Yes, my ship just docked this morning. Your ship? My, am I talking to a captain? I'm sort of in between ships right now. But no, it was a, uh, a, a hired charter. What, between ships? Now, sir, that sounds like a story Shelley would like to hear. Roll me an insight check. Uh, 15. 
you are pretty sure that Shelly could give a squat about your background. She is definitely trying to set you up and distract you. And that's why you're not as surprised when you turn back around as your drinks are served to see that two men have now sat on either side of you, basically taking the two stools to your left. So as you turn back around, you see that Shelly's actually actually taken the mug that you had ordered and pulled it over to herself. And she kind of looks at you slyly when she does. He'll, he'll flash her a playful grin as, as he files that, uh, the, the information about the, the two new guests off files that away. It, it will certainly be important later. So, uh, she picks up her mug and she gestures for you to pick up the, the shot of whiskey. He does. And so what shall we toast to? How about to, Ships and captains. And beautiful women. Oh, of course. She'll clink glasses with mm-hmm. you. Um, and then <laughs> she'll take not a womanly sip. It's more like a gulp, but mm-hmm. you know. And, and he will uh, take a, not down the shot, um, but take a take about half of it. Since he's, you know, without another drink. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so you guys converse for a few minutes more. Mm-hmm. Uh, she continues to be very engaging. She continues to sort of touch you. Like she's she's clearly making excuses to put her hand on your shoulder and and shake you a little bit. And you know maybe a couple times she'll almost pull you closer a little bit, very teasingly, as she finishes uh, your ale. And she's not affecting that she's drunk, but she's definitely talking a little louder. You're not sure if this is the an act or if she really did drink an entire ale, but. She definitely puts her hand on your shoulder, and it's not like she's shaking you, but she's just sort of rocking you a little bit. Roll me a perception. Actually, you'll have advantage, because I think we both know what's coming here. All right. Yay for advantage. That's a 23. (laughs) That will do it. So, not surprising, you feel a hand, or feel something, starting to sort of move along your pouch. You're pretty sure that the guy next to you is about to take it. Cade will... uh... Kind of continue rocking with Shelly, and he is going to do his kind of build up some back and forth, and then he's going to swing his hand down, grab a hold of of the hand that is as he feels it on the pouch, grab a hold of the man, and pull forward to try to yank him off the stool while maintaining his own position. Okay, uh, I will make that a a strength check versus his dex. And uh, I'm actually, I'm going to give him disadvantage rather than you advantage because he's certainly not expecting it. So go ahead and roll your strength check. Uh, 14. Uh, score one for disadvantage. He did very, very poorly. So actually what happens is you, you pull his hand almost around you and it causes his head to hit and smack the top of the bar loudly. And I mean, like loud enough for people that are playing games uh, across the way to stop. And even the bartenders sort of startle up as if they just now realized what's happening. And then you also see that in his hand, he has like a leather glove. And there are small, tiny little uh, razor blades that are affixed to the fingers. Uh, you would recognize this to what's probably one you've used it yourself or may even have on you in your pouch. I would have it confirmed or deny that. <laughs> but it's specifically designed to cut the bottom of a coin purse and empty the, the contents without actually having to remove the pouch. Huh. How'd that happen? If he looks down to the guy and then back to Shelly. Uh, Shelly now has the mug of ale that's empty, 
raised high above her head, and she's about to bring it down on yours. Let's see if the bar lives up to its name. What is your armor class? 14. You are whacked, sir. This is an improvised weapon. Damn it. I'm going to say that she actually has some skill with it. You know, she's probably done this. Oh, I'm sure this is not the first person she's broken a mug over their head. (laughs) So you take three points of damage as this this, uh, mug cracks you right in the forehead, top of your nose. You hear a crack and blood starts to seep out. She has broken your nose. Oh, God. Is he he, uh, nearly loses his balance on the stool? But he grab, kind of grabs a hold, hold of the lip of the bar to steady himself, and he looks back over her and whips the the contents of his glass, his of his whiskey, into her face. All right. At this point, we'll go ahead and go into initiative because there's some stuff that's about to happen. Um, I'm gonna have them go in two orders. All right. All right, so you are first, then the cut purses, and then Shelly. So what would you like to do? At this point, you're actually taking actions. He'll he'll um, kind of roll backwards off the bar um, with uh, an athletic grace and, and land on his feet with his, as he wipes the, uh, the the blood off of his nose. And uh, he, he'll continue his movement and uh, slide backward, kind of, you know, do a little run and slide under one of the tables um, try to pop out the other side. So like a table where people are sitting and having drinks yes, or the yes. bar where they're like the gambling? No, table? no. Is there, he's still in a bar area, so they're yes. sitting sitting having a drink. Okay, so basically, are you going to try like hide? So do you need to like roll your hide check to try to disappear? No, no, I'm not going to disappear. Nuh-uh. Okay. I mean, that would be the, the tactically sound thing to do, but <laughs> but no, that he he's I got a plan here and, and he needs to be seen. All right, well, I start now. All right, so yeah, so you're able, you, you can get away there, none of them are really in any any position to attack you, so I'm not going to worry about attacks of opportunity from leaving squares. Uh, they're both just, you know, Shelly's got a drink in her face. That guy's still got a whelp on his head. The other guy who was the accomplice just now figuring out what's happening, he stands up looking dumbfounded. You slide under the table, and both of those – actually, give me a higher low. Oh, we'll go low. Why not? So as you slide under the table, both of the patrons that were sitting there, you know, they jump up startled and they sort of spill their drinks, you know, over each other's shoulders. They back into other patrons in the bar and you can clearly start to hear some people going like, hey, what's the big deal? What's going on? Why'd you do that? You threw your drink in my face. And we're not like in a bar brawl or anything, but the level of energy in the tavern has risen significantly in the last couple of seconds. All right. It is now their turn. and really. They're not going to actively act right now. Uh, you get the feeling that you were fair game, maybe because you were new, but no one, like, not everyone in the bar is going to try to attack you. Mm-hmm. So everyone's just kind of looking around at Shelly and her two goons. And they're, so basically their actions just going to be kind of standing there looking dumb. So it's back to you. Yeah, I got that drink glass in my hand. I'm just going to chuck it. <laughs> All right, at who? Someone. Okay. And... First, I'll use my bonus action because I, I can't. Being a rogue, I can and hide. I'm I'm gonna just hide and attack from not being seen. Okay, so are is, you is my uh, hope? Okay. I'm not sneak attacking. I'm, no, uh, but to clarify, are you throwing it just like at a random bar patron to try to continue to build this? Oh, awesome? absolutely. Okay. I didn't know if you meant the two goons or Shelly. No, no, no. My, I want to. I want to get this place a rocking. <laughs> okay, so not even gonna make you roll for that. Just give me a higher low. We'll keep going low, because why not? 
All right. Luck is with you, my friend. So, yeah, you just pick someone out of the crowd that's still sitting out, maybe someone that hasn't actually reacted yet. And so they're completely unaware as this small shot glass catches them square in the nose, pretty much right where yours was. And it actually sticks. Like this person has kind of a bulbous <laughs> nose and it just pops right on there, cuts. There's like a circular cut right between the eyes where it just, you know, that thin bleeding. This dude stands up, flips the table. What the? And he just sort of like screams looking for someone to blame for this. Uh, I'm going to have him roll perception versus your hide to see if he sees if it was you or not. Can I, uh, I, I want to point out, I almost want to jump at this point and point to somebody. Okay. So rather than hiding, yeah. you want to try to like yeah, trick I, him. I want to, I want to, I, I don't know if bluff or deception is right on this. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's do deception versus his, um, I guess, in, uh, insight. She did it. He points to Shelly. Okay. And uh, he looks over and Shelly still has like, you know, uh, ale on her face. I'm going to give you disadvantage on that because there were better targets. Mm-hmm. So roll your do, do you deception. Think? Let's do deception. All right. A, a 14 and a 16. So a 14. Okay. Uh, either would have been good enough. He actually, I will get, I gave him a couple negatives just because of all the stuff that's happening. Plus, this is really fun. Um, so he looks over and he goes, Shelly, what the, what's the meaning of this? And he just starts like, crawling through the bars, just pushing tables out of the way, pushing other patrons out of the way. You hear them start to go, hey, what's going on? And her two goons move in front of Shelly as if to protect them. And he just like hauls off like he's getting ready to deck one of them. We have a bar fight. Kato's smile is, <laughs> and uh, kind of can't help but resist. He kind of does the whole little like uh, maestro conducting mo- hand motion for a minute and rubs his hands together because now's the time to strike. Yes, so... Some of the people are coming to Shelley's aid. Some other people are still confused. So it's not, again, it's not a full-on Western tavern bar brawl yet. But people are pushing each other. People are calling each other names. No one really seems to be focused on you at the moment. You were kind of awash. You're in the calm in the middle of this violent sea of erupting anger. What are you doing? Well, no reason not to add more fuel, right? <laughs> okay, I'll jump up onto a table and start jumping table to table, making my way to the bar. And of course, I'm kicking over drinks as I'm doing this. Why not? <laughs> okay. So, um, again, I'm not going to make you roll for mm-hmm. that. It's, it's definitely, I mean, what's your dexterity, like 16 or something? I'm 17. Seven, perfect. So you jump up there, definitely. You're kicking, you know, food in people's faces, drinks in people's faces, jumping table to table. Anyone who's not already agitated is now agitated. The difference is, is it's focused on you. Uh, but they're having to go through other people. Mm-hmm. So you are, we are on the cusp of a full out bar brawl. We need, we need one more instigation to just completely ignite the place. Oh, uh, okay. Is, 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 did I make it to the bar? Yes. You are on top of the bar at the moment. Uh, the, the, the bruiser that you hit with a glass is in the middle. Of, he's actually fighting. I'm not going to do all the rolls, but mm-hmm. him and the two goons are more fisticuffs, no weapons are out yet, but they're like brawling and, you know, headlocks and punches to the gut. And Shelly's taken several steps back and then she turns and sees you. And the, that mask of Southern courtesy and the beauty is gone. And she is looking at you like, like a hag. Just, she wants your soul. Oh, ouch. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I can't deal with her right now. 
All right, so you're looking over at Shelly. You turn and look, trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to be able to get to where you're going. And one of the bartenders, again, the big beefy guy, it, you know, basically just sort of points at you and he starts walking towards you like, hey, get off the bar. I'll take a, I'll take advantage of that and uh, start to to run at him. He's in the direction of the painting, right? I mean, as he, because you're kind of in the center, so as mm-hmm. he's coming towards is you, he coming, is the painting on my left or the right? In, in my mind, you're more to the left of the bar. Okay, it's in the center. He's coming from the right, so as he comes towards you, he's going to sort of pass in front of the middle. Great. I'm going to wait till he gets gets right up at me, right where you know, almost at a point that he's underneath the painting, and. I'm just going to run and kind of jump and and land on his arm and keep running, like run up his arm <laughs> and and jump off of his head up to grab the painting. Okay. I want to need one of your story points for that. So basically your hero tokens. Mm-hmm. That's totally worth a hero token. Perfect. All right. So yeah, so that's literally you, you jump on his outstretched hand and you just run up his arm and then you jump since you use the hero token, I'll just count it. You jump all the way up and you've, latched onto the top of this frame. Now, this is the part where you may not have, you may have miscalculated a little bit, is that it it just stays there. You're now, like, attached, hanging there on the wall. I have a look of momentary kind of, like, panic, like, oh, shit, on his face. Kind of tug on tug on it and, and look behind it. Um, it. How's this attached to the wall? It actually appears to be almost like it was uh, glued, like the entire back. <laughs> and as you're trying to look, it slowly starts to peel away so you're now sort of leaning backwards towards the bar and that is when you notice that Shelly has pulled a dagger from somewhere within her cloak and she's going to throw it at you oh this is gonna hurt (laughs) her dagger sticks into the back of your leg for three more points of damage so you now have a dagger in your right hamstring ouch and the frame continues to to pull loose and then right about that moment it completely completely comes free and you actually start to fall backwards i will try to land on my feet actually what happened to the uh what happened to the to the barman did did he move at all (laughs) well yeah actually he he probably would have turned and he's now probably reaching up as if to grab you are Uh, you gonna run down his fucking arms yeah i am all right i need a token for that that's worth it all right so how many you got left one all right, so, 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 okay. So, yeah, so you basically turn. Kind of hobble down the arm, you know, with the, yeah. the broken leg. It's, 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 the not quite, the leg. Yeah, it's not quite as smooth as the first time. But you manage to run down his arm, land back on the bar. You now have this framed piece of cloth in your hands. Both bartenders are getting ready to converge on you. Shelly is also coming towards you. The entire bar area is just alight with fighting. And it actually looks like it may have spilled over into the gambling area. It's possible some people have taken advantage of this distraction. Maybe they try to steal something because there's fighting over there now, too. What do you want to do? Is Shelly, is, is, she, is she within striking distance? She's up against the edge of the bar, but further down it, conversely, also closer to the hallway. Okay, I'm going to run her away. Okay, so you're going to start running toward her? Yeah. All right. Her eyes get kind of wide as you run right at her, and it looks like she's fumbling for another dagger somewhere in the folds of her dress. Well, when I get there, I'm just going to smash the frame. I'm going to smash the frame over her head. Okay, give me an attack roll. Uh, 14. That'll do it. So you bring this thing up over your head, 
straight down on hers. The the glass just shatters, and you can I mean you can see some of the glasses embedded in her face. She's she's gonna need more makeup tomorrow than she needed today. <laughs> and this this strip of cloth that you've been after so long is just sitting there, all for the taking. I'm gonna grab it and head towards the door. <laughs> all right, I'll pull the knife out of my leg as I do. So you pull the knife free. You drop it. You're uh, trailing a. a a line of blood behind you as you half run, half hobble down this hallway towards the door that has all these locks on the backside of it. And there's also a very large former gladiator standing there. He was now turned at this commotion, sees you running from something, bleeding, carrying the strip of cloth. He draws his sword and he holds it in front of you. I, instead of reaching for my weapon, pull the bag from my waist and kind of kind of hold it up as to say, Yeah? So you actually see his eyes go from you to the bag that you're holding. And then he goes in. He's now looking over your shoulder and he almost goes limp. Like you see like fear in his eyes and he actually drops his weapon. Like not to the ground, but like drops his stance so that it's not pointed up anymore. Well, I, I'll look back over my shoulder um, with uh, a, a look of like, uh, this can't be good. <laughs> so you look over your shoulder and what you see is that dwarf figure that you saw earlier, his two guards that are with him, and he just starts clapping. And that is where we will end your scene. All right, so where do we find Lander? So Lander is in his uh, small room, and he's starting to uh, pack some of his gear after a few days after he heard his brother's message about uh, him leaving another message. And so he wants to go and uh, see see what was left for him because he expected him to be home a few days ago. All right. So what, uh, what sort of things are you packing? So at this point, I'm just uh, packing some basics, just some clothes, uh, some rations, uh, maybe, a, maybe a few torches in case I get stuck there overnight. And uh, one of my prized possessions is a small vial of dragon's blood that well, I... Well, you, you think it's dragon's blood. Well, that's what I've been told. And I, it's one of my most prized possessions. I don't have very much to my name, but to me, this is like the most sacred item I own. And it's actually uh, actually where it is kind of an amulet, but I tuck it under my shirt so nobody sees it, but it's always with me. All right. So, so you're kind of standing there... And you, you have it, like you've pulled it out of your shirt and you're kind of, you know, uh, looking at it. Right, right. And uh, in your other hand, you have your bag. And that's when you hear the door behind you start to open. As that happens, I'll, uh, I slowly push my bag down on the side of my bed so that the bed's between the door so that it's out of view. All right. So uh, you, you manage to drop it down. And you kind of kick it out of the way just in time as the door fully opens. And it's uh, Aunt Kara. It's, it's the lady who's been protecting you for as long as you can remember. You don't really remember your parents. You've been here, as, again, as long as you can remember. She's always looked after you and looked after your brother. You're, you're young. How old is your character? I am 13. All right, so you're still fairly young. Right, right. Um, but she's also been helping you learn your magic. And you've kind of gathered that she's part of some organization that helps protect sorcerers and 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 um rebel wizards from the elven empire as you know you know using magic illegally can get you killed mm-hmm. sorcerers are outlawed like there is no other thing you if you're a sorcerer and you're not an elf you die 
Uh, so being a sorcerer, you and your brother both, it was very important that you were protected. And, and again, you don't know how you got here. Um, Kara is probably about 50 years old. She's got red hair. She always wears it pulled back into a bun. It, you imagine if she ever were to let it down, it would go down to her feet. Like it's just this crazy bun. She's got kind eyes, wrinkly skin, but uh, doesn't quite show her age. Very motherly, uh, almost like homespun frontiersman, you know, the clothes that she wears. Uh, and she kind of walks in and, and she just almost whispers, Lander, are, are you okay? You, I, I've just... You didn't come down to dinner. I was worried. I know. I can't get the message out of my mind from Cranthon. There's there's lots of reasons why he may not be able to do that. I, I told you, you just need to give him more time. Cranthon is a great sorcerer. He's very powerful. He's very smart. I know. You know I, you know I look up to my brother, and he's told me stories of where he could take on the whole empire himself. I know he could, but just... This last message, it, it's really getting to me. I'm so worried. I can't express more than you need to just let things happen. I've, I've, I've taught that it's, it's a lot like your power. You have to let it flow. I really would, would like for you to come down and, and have dinner and, and maybe talk more. <sighs> You're right. You're right. I, I just need to be patient. I mean, you, you've taught me so much about my, my abilities, and you know I like to— to try rush things, but you have always proven yourself to be right in these situations. Ah, uh, you can hear like coming closer, and then she comes up and she puts uh, like a hand on both of your shoulders, and she sort of pulls you in. She doesn't wrap her arms all the way around you. It's almost like she keeps her hands on your chest, and then just almost like drops her elbows <laughs> over your shoulders. But it's a very comforting kind of hug, and she pulls you in tight. We love you, and we love your brother. We will let nothing happen to you or him. I know. I just, he was supposed to be back days ago, but you're right. Maybe it's best if we just give it a little bit more time. Just imagine how upset he would be if he comes back and you've done something silly. <laughs> I and agree. <laughs> she, she like turns and at the point she turns you around and she's looking into, you know, into your eyes and she doesn't kneel all the way down, but she sort of half hunkers and she's, so she's looking around into your eyes. And this is a woman who's raised you for a very long time. She knows you very well. You, you can tell she knows you're thinking something. Mm -hmm. She may not know exactly how far along the path you are, but she knows you're thinking. And she's trying to say, if you do something silly, he's going to be mad. And you don't want your brother upset. Just let's come downstairs. Let's have a nice dinner. And, you know, maybe we'll practice some more after, after dinner. You've got some more uh, breathing exercises and, and meditation. I, I think I can help you unlock some more power. I look into her eyes. I'm like... You're right. Um, just give me a minute, and I'll be I'll be right on down. She she just kind of nods, and then she she hugs you again. She leans in, gives you a little kiss on the cheek, and then gives you another one on the forehead. And there's this odd moment. You're not sure if she believes you, mm -hmm. or if she's just resigned to the fact that maybe you're not swayable. She knows you're stubborn, but she's not going to argue anymore. And there's this almost sort of like a weighted sadness when she kisses you and then she turns and she walks away. She gets to the door and she stops. She, put, she has her hand on your door and she stops. And you, you, you're like, you're waiting for her to turn around. And then she doesn't, she takes another step and she just closes the door behind her. So as aunt Cara leaves the room, I look uh, next to my, my bed on the uh, table stand. And uh, there's a, there's a painting of 
uh, my mom and dad from when when they got married, and there's a painting of the two together. And so I, I always take that with me to have my family with me. And as I place that in the bag, I uh, hold it close for a second and then place it in there. And then almost uncharacteristically, I uh, actually make my bed. And in my head, I do this as a way of saying, I'll be back and I'm going to return. All right. So uh, so you gather your, your stuff back up and your, your bag that you had stuffed uh, under the bed. Uh, there's a window to your room. You are upstairs. Right. Um, give me a dex check. Okay. I got a 17. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you can drop down pretty quietly. You land. There's like a small window that when you raise up from your crouch, you look through and you can see Aunt Kara at the table. And she's sitting there. And she's got her food, and you see that she's already made a plate for you, and her eyes are, are turned towards that plate, but so you can't see her face, but you, you have the feeling that she's crying. Like, you just sort of sense that she's very, very sad about this, about what's going on. So you, you turn away from the window, and surprisingly, your buddy Davin is standing right there beside you. He's another kid in the village. He doesn't seem to have powers like you, but you know that his family is related to this organization that Aunt Kara's in. Hey, Lander, what's what's going on, man? Devin, Devin, whoa, uh, hey, wh- what are you doing here? What are you doing at my house? I, I came over to see if you wanted to study together tonight. I Why did you climb out of your window? I, I, uh, I'm just go- going on a little hike, uh, you know. Are you running away? No, 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 I'm not running away. You, listen, we're, we're buddies, all right? I'm your... I'm your friend. I care about you. If you're going somewhere, I can help you. Tell me, are you are you leaving? I just I I just need to get away for a little bit just to collect my thoughts. But I'm I'm not running away. I'm I'm coming back. I'm ready to go too. Come on, let's go to my house. I'll grab my stuff. We'll both go together. It'll be amazing. All right, but you know you can't tell my aunt Cara, right? No, of course I would. I would never betray your trust. We're friends. You swear? I swear. All right, pinky swear on it. He holds out his pinky. All right. And as I pinky swear, touch him, I want to use my sleep spell and put him to sleep. All right. You don't have to roll for that. I mean, he's a commoner, so he, he'll just fall out. And you're actually like holding him by the pinky for a second, so you can like lower him down gently. I'm, I want to grab an extra shirt out of my pack and give him a little pillow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so beyond that, you're actually able to make it out of the village without any any other conflict. You've got a long journey ahead of you. Hopefully you're ready for it. I hope so, too. <laughs> All right. So we open Erevin's scene. You are on a wagon, and it's laden with goods. There's barrels and crates, and there's also a, like a heavy canvas tarp laid over something kind of in the middle of all of that. And uh, it's late at night, you know, like midnight, maybe even like past midnight, uh, dark night. There's uh, a little bit of mist in the air. So there's some some uh, some fog starting to kind of rise up. To the left of you is uh, the ocean of Draymouth. It's calm in this part, so there's just little sound of the wave laughing, but it's not very aggressive. And you are traveling down this road, and you expect to see no one, and that is why you are completely surprised to see what appears to be an, a contingent of elven soldiers not far in front of you, crossing the road as if they were waiting for you. And perhaps even more concerning is one of the mage hounds, which is something that you would be familiar with as an elf, is standing there with them. And it is basically 
basically behind them, and they're literally right in front of you, like a checkpoint, as if they knew you were coming. What are you going to do? I will ride the cart almost all the way up to the front of them. You see the elves, like, they'll take, like, a step back. The mage hound doesn't move. Roll me a perception check. Uh, 13. It's it's quite dark, uh, but there's something about this mage hound that doesn't sit right with you for some reason. You know, you've probably seen several of these over the course of your life, and, you know, they're, they're featureless. But this one has some sort of marking. You don't have it to have its dirt or a gouge, but it, it almost looks like it's squinting at you. So when my wagon and the horse that's pulling it reaches uh, near the front of the elf, I will say to the elf, I mean to go through. And then the entire time I will, my my gaze doesn't look at that elf that I'm addressing. It actually looks at the mage hound that is unusual. So uh, so the elf, he looks like a, like a guard captain. He's wearing the regalia of, uh, of the captain. Uh, steps over and he'll, he'll put a hand on your horse. Uh, rubbing it, it's flanked, kind of calm, and he, he gets a hold of the bridle, and it's a very casual move, but you clearly sense that that's him saying, you're not leaving. Uh, Traveler, what is your name? Everin Serker. What can I do for you, Captain? Uh, we have reason to believe that there is some contraband that's supposed to be traveling down this road. Of course, we suspect that you would not be a part of that, but I would not be doing my job if I did not fully inspect your wares just to ensure for both of our sakes that there is nothing untoward on your wagon. Is is there anything on your wagon that we would need to be concerned about? Of course not. I will be free and frank and say that I'm a traitor. So what wares are you hauling this lovely evening? One of the other elves is sort of circling around the other side towards your back of your wagon. Well, Captain, I am a, a trader of goods, in particular, dark iron. Right, when you say that, the elf that was sort of reaching towards your wares actually pulls back a hand like of a, of a snake was there. Like that, that term startles him. Dark uh, iron, that's valuable, but deadly. Is that why you're taking it out so late? That's also why I'm by myself. I don't find too many that are willing to bear this burden with me. It is Good work, though. Pays well. And he sort of emphasizes that a little bit, maybe more than he should. But you're doing good works for the Empire. I appreciate that. But but still, we do need to uh, inspect things. And he'll sort of lean over and he does kind of a whistle. But the Mage Hound responds to that. And it sort of comes lumbering over. And it will actually circle around the wagon. And it starts, like, picking up things. You get the sense that it can't be affected by dark iron, so it doesn't matter. Quickly, they go through all the things, and all that's left is the canvas tarp in the middle. And you almost get the feeling like he knows there's something there, and he's sort of watching you to see how you react as they get closer and closer to that. Captain, it pays well because there aren't a whole lot of us that are willing to do this. Tell your hound and the rest of your guards to be careful. I wonder what would happen if some of the dark iron got disturbed before I was able to temper it, and it, say, exploded? Roll a deception. Uh, 17. He chuckles a little bit at that, and it's that weird half thing where he's pretty sure you're joking, but he's just scared enough that if you're not, he's not going to take it. So he actually does take like a half step back, and then he, he kind of says, be careful with that um, as the mage hound continues to move things. And, and then now we've got to the last thing, and the mage hound reaches over and he just rips the cloth off. 
What do we see underneath the cloth? We have a body, lifeless, laying there. It's got some wounds on its side and uh, a bleeding, let's say dried blood rather, on its forehead near one of the temples. So, so obviously tarp off dead body, elven body. Yes, elven body. I'm sorry. And uh, and the the guard captain, he doesn't like react like you would think a guard captain would react to that. He just sort of looks back up at you as if to explain. Well, captain, I told you there weren't a few of us that do this. That happens to be someone that got in my way when I picked up my goods. A uh, we'll call it a rival. I didn't like how he spoke to me, and um, I'm just taking his body back to town to show his contingent that I am here for business. So essentially you just confess to murder, and the guard captain doesn't really react, at least not initially. And he takes a a step back and takes like a thoughtful pose and says, well, I'm afraid, sir, that, uh, you know, this is a matter for the court. I, I can't take your word that this man needed to die. Uh, and I'm, you know, I know the courts are busy. They have a lot of things going on, but I don't think we can, we can remove this from their decision. I, I can't think of a way that would make it okay for this to happen. Can, can you think of anything that would make this okay? I can think of perhaps one thing. Uh, this dark iron is worth quite a bit. And uh, it, I do so happen to have pretty good sum Surely you're not insinuating that you would bribe me, a, a guard captain of the Elven Empire, with all my men right here watching. That would be foolhardy for me to take a bribe with all of my men here watching. No, Captain, I, I wouldn't tell you to take a bribe, but maybe maybe you deserve a, a nice dinner and some drinks. Maybe, uh, maybe you have a wife that uh, needs some new dress or... Uh, a son that maybe needs some private lessons. Maybe these other men have the same thing. Hmm. That's, you know, those, those are questions that I think philosophers should answer best. Perhaps we should all think about that for a moment. And he's just sort of like waiting. Well, at this point, um, it's pretty late and I want to be going. So to get out of this situation um, quick as I can, I will take a pouch that's on my side and kind of toss it in my hand once and let it, uh, let everything jingle so that he can hear it. And I will just, uh, reach down and hand it to him, uh, palm up, letting him take it out of my hand and just kind of cock my head to the side as if to say, can we be done with this? So he, um, he smiles as he takes the bag and he just, I mean, with the grace of an elf, he slides it inside of his like tunic and, uh, he just uh, he says, "Grace of the elves be with you, and glory to the emperor." And they just sort of smiles, and you know, just he turns away, completely forgotten about you. Uh, the other elves have circled around. You do notice that the that the mage hound again, it doesn't have eyes, but it looks like it's looking at you, kind of thoughtful, and it's it, it's almost unsettling, but it doesn't do anything. You'll have to get down and put the tarp back over yourself. But at this point, they are literally ignoring you. Like, they don't care anymore. I will eye the guards as I go through them with the cart, and I'll get past them a little bit. I will stop the horse, 
climb over the back seat of uh, where I'm sitting on the front of the wagon and uh, redrape the tarp the whole time, though, uh, I will be eyeballing the Mage Hound again and watching it, not paying attention to anything else, but making sure that obviously the tarp covers uh, the body. Right. So the uh, the rest of the elves, they've actually started to walk on the same way you were coming, but the Mage Hound is continuing to stand in the middle of the road looking towards you or faced towards you. And you can even hear like the, the commander sort of like calling at the Maytown to come on. I'll look over my shoulder at least once after I hear his after I hear his call to see if it's moving or what its reaction is. It hasn't moved yet. It's still standing there looking at you. As you sort of go out of out of sight the other way, you actually see the commander coming back to it as if like redressing it for not listening. And that, that sort of fades into the background. You continue on your way for probably about another hour. So it's like two o'clock in the morning. And there's a small, just like a pier, uh, just off to your left that just kind of goes out into the calm ocean. And you can hear the lapping of the waves, but there's another sound, a, a, a paddling sound that you can also hear barely. So I will take the wagon down toward the pier and I'll give the horse probably something to, uh, to chew to occupy itself, to keep it quiet. There's some and, grass around. Yeah, tie it to uh, maybe a tree limb or something so it doesn't go away. I will walk around the back of the wagon and just kind of flip the tarp over halfway on itself, uh, revealing probably three quarters of the body or so. And off of the uh, body, I'll kind of climb in the back of the wagon. I take the bottom of the tarp and I flip it over on itself uh, about halfway, revealing most of the body. I will reach up and grab the hand of the body and I will slip a ring off of its middle finger. And when you do that, uh, there's like a shimmery uh, sort of glow envelops the elf, and it, it changes form a little bit. And no longer do you see the elf that you killed, but there's actually a singed elf there. And almost like they were in some sort of magical slumber, they, they shake awake. And you can still see that the ears have freshly been cut. They're, they're scabbed over, but they're still bleeding a little bit. Uh, the skull cap that was recently affixed. There's still just like bright red skin all the way around where it was affixed. And uh, the, the, the guy, it's a male elf, um, well, elf no more, uh, just looks exhausted. Even though he woke up from this magical slumber, he just seems weak and tired. And he seems confused because he was unconscious before you took your part of the route. So he doesn't know who you are. And he sort of startles and you see almost like a skittish animal sort of backs up and puts his back against the front of the wagon away from you. Easy, Ara. Easy. Who, who are you? Where, where am I? What's going on? My name's Evren. I've, uh, we've reached a place that, that you can be on your way, safe. You see his hand go up to his head, uh, almost like unconsciously, and then when he touches that metal plate, just defeat in his eyes. And you imagine he, he probably thought this was a dream. You know, he's probably dreamed that every day, that it was a dream. And once again, he's hit with the reality. If, so this, this is really happening? It is, I'm sorry. There isn't much we can do to change it now, but you just have to do what you can to learn to live with it and keep yourself safe. So you hear uh, that paddling sound get closer. There's a there's a, sh- a rowboat coming up close to the pier where you're at. Come with me, quickly. He isn't quick, but he kind of lumbers up to his feet, a little bit woozy. and uh, I'll take his hand and kind of guide him out of the wagon, give him... A, uh, a shoulder to lean on. I will, uh, I'll kind of take him and put my hand around, uh, around his waist, kind of supporting him, 
being that he's uh, just awakened and still probably in some pain from uh, the trauma that he went through. He He's wincing with the steps, and uh, he actually starts, like, weeping. You know, he's not, like, full-out blubber bawling, but there's tears pretty well streaming down his eyes. Um, you lead him just down the pier, and right about the time you get to the edge, you can see the rowboat coming right up in front, and there's a very short, stocky, cloaked figure that is uh, putting the oars up right as the, the boat comes up beside and it just sort of sits there in, in silence. A couple more steps, Aro. Just a few more. You can do this. And we'll shuffle a few more closer to within earshot of regular voices. I don't want to have to yell it. But to the cloaked figure, I say, may your axe cut deep and your mead be strong. So with that call sign, the figure throws back its hood, and it's a burly dwarf with a magnificent beard braided and all these kind of crazy designs. And he he doesn't smile gleefully, but he smiles knowing that you are who you say you are. He finishes getting the boat just below the pier. There's like a ladder down, and he says, quickly, quickly. I will um, probably pick Ara up a little bit um, and help him walk so that he, um, knowing that he's not moving very well, and we will walk over to the ladder and I will kind of help turn him around so that he can go down feet first. And I will uh, yell down uh, to Orsic, uh, the dwarf that uh, paddled the boat up, and I'll say, careful with this one. Uh, he seems to be a little a little bit more in pain than some of the others that I've brought to you. I'll treat him like a newborn kitten, I will. Sort of stands up and he at the bottom is sort of helping guide him down as well as you're going from the top. So you guys are able to, to get him into the boat. He kind of lays down in the well of the boat and you see he's got a tarp he throws a tarp over him as well uh, as well and then he sort of gives you like a quick little two-finger wave without anything else he starts paddling back out into the darkness you're you're sure there's something out there probably a ship of some sort but it's too far out for you to see or it's hidden somehow under my breath uh just to no one in particular i'll say out loud keep yourself safe ara and then um you notice sort of a pain in your uh, the palm of your right hand, it it's been bothering you for a while. Just it's sort of an, almost like an achy feeling. I'll take my left hand and with my thumb, and I'll take my thumb and kind of work it into my palm to try to massage the pain out of it. And uh, that's when you you kind of see there's a discoloration in your palm. It's not distinctive yet, but to someone who's trained with dark iron like you are, you recognize it as the poisoning. There's a kind of a grimace on my face. At some point, I expected this to be it, hoping it wouldn't be this soon. But um, I kind of take my hands apart, shake my, my right hand, not necessarily shrug my shoulders, but know that there's nothing I can do about it at this point. And I go back to my horse and wagon. All right. And that is where we will leave your scene as you are getting back onto your horse, heading back uh, into town. <laughs> 